Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, today's episode is brought to you by Sweet Spot for iPhone. Sweet Spot is an app. It's a simple way to curate and share your favorite experiences. Whether you're documenting a vacation or you're keeping track of your favorite bars or you're sharing a list of your city's essential parks or museums, Sweet Spot for iPhone is built for you. You can use the app to follow friends or family. You can follow celebrities, your favorite actors, your favorite musicians, whatever. And then when building your own curations, you can pull in photos from Instagram, from Facebook. You can pull in locations from Google Maps. And then you use tags and text to tell a story. From there, you share your curations uh, on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, Google+, uh, whatever you want. Sweet Spot is a little bit different from other apps in that it wants you to be really thoughtful. It wants you to connect places to places and moments to moments. Also, very important, it's free. You can download Sweet Spot for iPhone right now over at the App Store. This is an app. You can download it for free. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is one of billions of available programming options. This is an extremely minor worldwide phenomenon. How are you today? Uh, I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. And uh, I'm very pleased to have Cassandra Troyan on the program today. She's a writer. She's a visual artist. She's a filmmaker. Uh, she does some performance art. She is uh, she's a hybrid. And her latest book, Kill Manual, is due out from uh, Artifice Books coming up in October. I believe the official pub date is uh, October 14th, 2014. You can pre-order that now. Uh, Cassandra and I are going to be talking momentarily. Uh, I am... Uh, once again, a bit weary. This has been a trend lately. I cannot get through a night of sleep without my daughter waking me up. I don't mean to keep complaining about this, but this is my life. <laughs> Last night, uh, just to give you a little bit of context, my daughter's birthday's coming up. When you have a child this young, she's going to turn four. Uh, they, you know, they get very excited about their birthdays, and it's kind of a, a, a long process. You know, the, there's the weeks leading up to the birthday. There's the actual birthday. Uh, there tend uh, there tends to be multiple celebrations. You you know you do one at school, you do one with the grandparents, you do one with the friends, 
you do one on the actual day. Uh, so, you know, we've been trying to deal with this. Uh, and today in just a minute before, you know, right after I finish this, I've actually got to run over to her school for the school party. Um, but you know, last night we put her to bed. She's very excited, obviously about this school birthday party. And so my wife, uh, puts in her bed after she's fallen asleep, uh, a my little pony. It's the, uh, it's the head pony. It's actually a unicorn. And, uh, I don't know. Did you guys hear that? There's something happening upstairs, but, um, basically it's the law. It's the big, uh, unicorn pony. And I'm forgetting the, I'm forgetting the, the unicorn pony's name, but, uh, anyhow, we put this in her bed so that she would wake up with it. The only problem is that she woke up with it at about four 30 and, uh, discovered it in her bed and freaked out, <laughs> uh, in a very adorable way. So, uh, she came running in. I woke up, I went into her room. We, we talked about the unicorn for a while and, uh, what was, uh, especially, uh, cute and also devastating about this is that my daughter, uh, revealed to me that she believes unicorns are real. She was asking me, uh, for some reason she thinks unicorns live in Hawaii. <laughs> I don't know who told her this, but she was asking me when we can go to Hawaii tech to, to see real unicorns. So, uh, you know, it was dark out. It was, uh, you know, not yet dawn and uh, I'm in her room and uh, I'm exhausted and I'm faced with the, uh, the challenge of trying to decide if I, if I crush her and tell her that unicorns aren't real and I couldn't do it. Kind of disappointed in myself. Not that I like to crush the dreams of small children, but, um, I like to be real with my child. That's just my approach. I've talked about this before. So now I've got to go back and I've got to, I've got to tell her that I was, that I was lying. <laughs> I was lying. Kids do this to you. I mean, I know that you, you know, there's some magic to childhood. I don't want to rob her of the magic of childhood, but I'm not going to tell my daughter that unicorns live in Hawaii. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Anyway. Uh, let's get to the program. Cassandra Troyan, uh, once again, writer, artist, filmmaker, performance artist, hybrid. Uh, her latest book is called Kill Manual. It's due out from Artifice Books in October. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Cassandra Troyan. It's interesting within like contemporary dance, like, you know, you have people like Deborah Hay or like William Bell or Yvonne Rayner who, um, started to then think of of like that the that you know dance and choreography 
is actually like about kind of like the movement of one's body in life. So like she'll have dances that are then based on like, you know, a lot of the footwork and soccer. So we have parts where we're doing like rugby and football drills. So like monkey rolls and suicides mixed in, but then that will translate, <laughs> but then that will transition into like stripper moves, you know, and it all like sort of like correlates to different kind of like ebbs and flows of the performance of, cause you know, of, of just like making a, a kind of like arc in terms of trying to balance like more intense movements with then. But with, with poetry and interspersed, like you're, you're intermingling these two things. Yeah. So someone's like reading poetry and then someone, are you guys like do like you doing suicides on stage and then, uh, like saying, like do like reciting poetry at the same time, or is one person doing the poetry and the other person's doing the dance? It's like pre-recorded within, um, so it's like, there's like an, a soundtrack that, um, is also, there's a soundtrack that then we have like recorded our voices, like reading these texts that we like made specifically for this so it's like it's kind of i think the easiest way to think about it is like there's this there's a constructed soundtrack that then helps in terms of like creating like a kind of you're sort of like entering an immersive world in terms of there's video there's this movement going on there's like sound elements outside of the poetry and you know the sort of idea of daddy's cave sort of like came also too from you know us kind of thinking about um this sort of landscape of suburbia and the man cave and so there's other kind of artifacts that exist visually within the performance like it sort of begins with a very like slow panning like continuing shot of you know just like chicago like a Chicago suburb, but then that's also juxtaposed with different, like, classic dad rock sort of, like, intermix, but we've <laughs> taken it. What is, I, was, I, was, uh, I was running, like, I was texting a friend the other day, and, like, I, I mentioned that I was listening to, like, My Morning Jacket, and she was like, that's so dad, because I'm, I'm a dad, I've got a young daughter, and, uh, like, it sort of made me feel bad about myself. I was like, shit, am I that, like, that much of a cliche that I'm listening to My Morning Jacket, and I somehow fell into some sort of demographic? Like, do you feel that way about that? Is, is that what you're talking about? Well, we, I, I would say My Morning Jacket is, that's a vast improvement then from our sort of, like, vision. I think it's also, too, of, like, imagining our own, our own fathers as well. So we're, it's like, we're thinking more, like, the dad rock that features in ours, there's like a re-contextualizing um, of um, Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses sure. and then Hotel California. Yeah, my, you know, so, my, my dad like never listened. My parents, I always bag on them, them for this. I've given them shit for this over the years because like well, I grew up in a house without like a proper stereo. My parents didn't even have a record collection. Like they were just so not into music and the only music that I ever recall my dad really like telling me he he liked which is which makes it even weirder is uh James Brown <laughs> like he was like way into that but like we you know I don't I didn't have one of those you know those parents who like had like the groovy record collection mm-hmm. yeah no it's just like it's in it's a strange sort of thing because I think my parents they did have they had pretty good they had a lot of records and good taste in music but I think it's also there's something about you know those songs sort of, I think, uh, become a sort of, like, haunting 
for me, like, a very emblematic thing of, like, whenever I go, I'm from Columbus, Ohio, and so whenever I go to see my my parents or I'm, like, there, and you just, like, turn on the radio, there's always this, like, this classic rock station that I just remember my dad listening to when he's, like, mowing the lawn, and it's just, like, <laughs> you know, it's just, like, ACDC and Guns N' Roses and just, like, the Eagles, like, again, it's just, like, it's one of those things that I feel has sort of psychically become part of that landscape for me, even though I've never really, I've never decided in my life ever that I like would like to listen to the Eagles. No. Okay. It's so funny that you say the Eagles and it's so funny that you mentioned the bands that you mentioned because I'm from Indiana mm-hmm. and, you know, and Wisconsin, but I, you know, adolescence in Indiana, which is, uh, you know, I lived, I grew up like an hour, like an hour and a half, two hours from Columbus, Ohio. Okay. And, and uh, that like the, the kind of music that was on the radio when I was growing up, uh, that kind of classic rock. Like for some reason, I'm remembering like 38 Special, yeah. <laughs> ZZ, yeah. ZZ Top, like, Hurt, like all this stuff too. It's like, why is this still alive? Yeah, well, but the Eagles, you know. But the thing is, is that it can evoke a real nostalgia in me. And like, I'm an Eagles fan, and like, I know they get a lot of shit, and I think people can consider them milk toast or whatever. But like, there's something really nostalgic and very like that part of the country, you know, that uh, yeah. the Eagles speak to. It really is like the soundtrack to my youth in some ways. So. Um, you know, I want to get to your, uh, life and childhood and where you're from and all that. But before we get there, uh, you know, you're touching on some things that, uh, I've talked about a little bit before on this show with other people who are, uh, poets and, and, uh, I'm thinking specifically of Steve Roganbuck just because he works as a poet, but also in multimedia, you know, and he kind of like has hybridized his approach and his presentation. And, um, I think that's a really... Uh, I mean, it's not like that's completely brand new. I know there, there's a tradition of this in the arts of people working in multiple forms at once, but it seems now like in the digital age, especially that the ability to, um, you know, work in multiple, uh, formats at once and to present yourself and distribute yourself is never been better. And like, like when you're doing all this stuff and you're conceiving these shows, I'm wondering, like, what's your, do you have like an end game in mind? Like, are you trying to do like in a, a Marina Abramovich, like performance art museum thing? Or are you trying to, um, you know, do something that you can then, uh, you know, digitize and distribute over the internet? Like, do you have thoughts along those lines? Yeah, I, I would say, um, in terms of my, of my own approaches that, um, you know, like it's it's kind of, and it, it's interesting. I was reading this interview uh, recently with this writer uh, named Hannah Black. She writes for the New Inquiry, but she also does video work. And it's always, I think, really interesting now where there's a lot of people that I think more and more, especially in terms of visual artists, that have all kinds of like overbleeds in terms of like, oh, they maybe have some sort of oblique like writing practice or they do performance and they do video or they curate and they do like all of these different things but it's usually the assumption that if you do all these things it's because you're not necessarily good at one particular thing but I feel for um, for my work rather than you know really thinking about it in terms of what is like the end sort of like product I'm really someone who's very invested in um, like pro- a process, and also for me that uh, different projects. I usually since everything I do is like very, it's very collaborative. It's um, you know it it 
it requires like a number of different sort of elements and it's usually, you know, I have some collaborations with like say for a friend of mine who I mean Olafol who's in Malmo, Sweden, like we've worked on and off together for like five years on like one particular project. And so I think for me like usually especially how I kind of see like poetry and performance, it's usually in response to there's some kind of question that I am, you know, like thinking about or something that I'm engaging with in the world that I'm trying to like process like how I conceptualize this specific event or this, you know, this like that there's, there's something to me that feels like pertinent and like necessary that I need to address, but perhaps just with my thinking or reading or other types of writing with it, it doesn't like I can't quite get at like, you know, some particularity of the of the of the issue at hand. So that's usually I think for like this um let's say for example this performance that I'm doing here with my collaborator Rachel Ellison at um Flying Object, I think it's because, you know, like why couldn't this just be poetry or why isn't it just performance necessarily? I think for this um, specific incident, it's because it's so much, you know, that there's like a, the text is extremely important because it's our kind of, you know, experience and trying to like write through these, also too, she's from Cincinnati, Ohio, so I think like a lot of our work in terms of this collaboration is really interested in terms of the specificity of like the Midwest and, you know, the kind of possibilities that are in that are within this particular region and, like, the sort of, like, landscape, but also, you know, the things that are potentially really difficult about it. And so I think within this, realizing that there's something that couldn't be reached through just text because the element of within this performance, there's so much about, like, gender and the body and how, you know, uh, how since the, moment, since the moment you're born and you're basically a male or a female like, how much you're, like, immediately being, like, taught to perform in, like, very specific ways just through, you know, the expectations of society or your family. So I think that it's usually I'm interested in larger sort of questions a lot of times that cannot, that feel unresolved to me just through, like, one like medium. Okay. So, and then when, but when you're, you know, if you're doing all this, you know, like it, it raises questions about like how to support yourself. Like, are you teaching in academia? Like you work through one of these projects and I, and I get that like the process is more interesting to you than like, you know, some end product. But, you know, if you have one of these questions that's nagging and that you can't quite uh, solve in one particular medium, and then you put this whole thing together, you have to be thinking to yourself, well, what am I going to do with it? Like you, you want to show it to somebody, right? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that's why, like, I very, I have realized more in terms of my practice, like, I um, have, you know, like, an active sort of, like, role that it's usually for me is, like, based on situations. Like, okay, then this is, like, a performance that may, is made for, like, this residency, and I'm here being supported by this by this residency. Or, like, you know, and I travel for shows and, like, performances and residencies. And so it's usually, like, very, like, site-specific as well. And that I'm thinking, you know, if I'm in a place longer, like, uh, two falls ago with um, 
a collective I used to collaborate with called Bureau for Open Culture. We did a project and in Siena, Italy, in Tuscany, at this um, called the Siena Art Institute, and so we were there for we were there for several months, and we were sort of we were teaching a class based on um, Michelangelo Antonioni's La Clice, and then I also like made a you know, and then I also made um, a film while we were there that was sort of like in relation to the seminar that we were teaching, and it was the sort of like collaborative seminar with the students there. So I think that I've I've realized in terms of my practice and, and how it works, like I'm not someone who has like, you know, like I don't go into the to a, like a studio and I don't like make paintings or something, so I don't have... You know, my work only exists in the world so much that there is, like, a space provided for it. So I've kind of, like, realized that I work very, like, much, you know, that I work specifically for, like, spaces where I have, like, been invited or someone, like, asked or someone suggests I should apply for something. And so I usually do things, I usually do things that way. And maybe if I'm in a situation where, okay, I'm not, like, going to, like, perform live somewhere for a while, that, you know, maybe my practice then it turns into being, like, never necessarily solitary, but, you know, more individual in terms of, like, I'm writing and, you know, like, researching and maybe spending more time doing that. But in terms of supporting it as well, like, I, you know, I teach sometimes. I work currently um, as an exhibition coordinator for uh, Columbia College in Chicago. I do, like, freelance work. So it's usually... For me, the most important thing is usually my ability to to travel. Yeah, well, and so what's the, and what's like the ideal, like do you have an ideal in mind of how your career would would look? I mean, because, you know, everybody knows it's pretty tricky to uh, make ends meet as a poet and to be working, even to, even to be working in a, like a multi or interdisciplinary um, way, you know, in video and uh, theatrical performance, like doing the kind of art that you do you know, there, it's it's hard. It's hard to find an audience. It's hard to make it generate uh, money. And the the bitch of it is that it costs money to live. So, like when you look forward, are you thinking to yourself, uh, like I want to find a way to to teach to subsidize this because teaching seems to have like a, you know a more flexible schedule and can lend itself to summers of travel or whatever. Or is there some other way that you plan on working it out? Yeah, I mean, I think. Uh you know, and it's also like teaching is uh, is also uh, a kind of like difficult avenue, just in terms of you know, like I have my MFA in visual arts, but it's still you know, teaching jobs are due to like the new financialization of the universities. Like a lot of teaching jobs are basically being made like obsolete. So you know, it's something too. Like even teaching is like a kind of privileged position that only like some right. people really get to do or get to do it in the way of like you know there's plenty of people I know that have been like adjuncting for like 10 plus years or that's you know that's 20 30 yeah I, I had I adjuncted and like I parsed it out in terms of the hours I was spending versus what I was making and I was making like less than like the average like made in Los Angeles like you get paid nothing yeah no 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 absolutely you'd be better off like working at a fast food restaurant or being like a waitress or something. Right. But, um, 
Yeah, so I mean, that's also like definitely uh, a question for me in terms of, you know, and I think it also gets into a lot of different issues too of, you know, you're working so hard for, you know, for for what you do and maybe you believe in it, but at the same time, you know, thinking of how much like students are going into debt thinking that they're paying you, but they're actually like, you know, paying some like president who's going to get like $5 million a year to do. Right knows what so it's so i mean i kind of it's <laughs> not to be not to be bleak but you know it's kind of that i think in in many ways especially in the united states the options available for people who are some sort of like cultural or creative producers are you know like we do not have a kind of like system in place in europe where i just met this this woman in New York who was, does, like, theater and performance, and she um, lives in Brussels, and she was saying, like, oh, this month I don't have the job, so then there's, like, a government grant. Well, like, yeah. I can go, like, travel. Yeah, no, <laughs> and, like, I was just going to say, because I have a buddy who's a poet here in Los Angeles. He's done, like, five tours of Europe, all of them bankrolled by... Um, you know, the, the governments of these various countries, they have actual cultural money that they dole out generously to support such things. And, uh, when you mentioned Siena and you're there for months, like obviously you're, you're kind of earning your keep by teaching this course, but you know, and I guess the American, American say again. Yeah. I mean like some of that, but it was mostly, it's like, you know, we were being provided for by like this um, residency program after they had invited my, um, collaborator and friend like James Voorhees to do this to do this project so yes I mean they were supported they were supporting us being there yeah so that's the way to go but I mean I think constantly chasing grants and like constantly you know uprooting yourself I mean travel's great but I mean like constantly chasing grants and residencies um, you know they're great when you get them but it's kind of exhausting you got to be applying constantly and they don't last forever uh, and so on and so forth like uh, it's a it's a uh I don't know. It's a bold move and it comes in, you know, loaded with risk. Like I'm wondering, um, like what, what do your folks think? You know, like, are they like, Oh God, you know, go, go get a, a steadier job. Or are they pretty supportive of you? Oh no, they're, they're like very supportive. I think they've just, you know, also like understanding, but I mean, you know, it, and I think some people realize like in terms of this kind of, I think it just also, you know, it depends on your personal, like, desires in life and certain, like, like mental mentality of what you feel you is, is sustainable. Like, I mean, there's definitely times when I feel burned out and I know that I just have to, like, sort of, you know, kind of, like, shut off certain circuits and try to, like, get back into a very specific routine. But, you know, like, if I don't travel for a while, I definitely feel very anxious and like know that this is just like part of how how I live my life at the same time you know like I'm not married I don't want to have children and so these are also things that I that if I were going to you need to then you know of course think about types of job securities and how you like support those certain things right i was going to ask you because you know like that's what i'm up against and it's like you know it changes the calculus quite a bit so you've already determined like this is the thing like especially when you're working in um an art form or in multiple art forms that you know kind of fall outside of the mainstream and and uh, tend to be difficult to uh support oneself on like there there's a 
kind of an inherent sacrifice that goes along with a commitment to these things. And so it sounds like you've sort of thought this through, like you're, you're a hundred percent certain that like kids are not in the picture. Like is marriage out of the picture too? Like, are you going to go like, I just read this book by uh, Jenny Offal called uh, the department of speculation, which I've talked about before. I really liked it. And she refers to how, when she was like young pre-marriage pre-kids, like she had these dreams of becoming a quote art monster and not necessarily in the pejorative, you know, but just somebody who's like whole life, they pour into their art and that's what they are sort of uh, fully committed to in a way that people who decide to have, uh, you know, spouses and families can't necessarily do. Like, are you an art monster? Um, I would not, I, you see, like, I would not say I'm an art monster because I think, you know, that there are other things as well. Like, I'm someone who's also like, politically active and, you know, and care about those kinds of communities and trying to, you know, find certain situations for, like, always, you know, like, living more communally and thinking, <clears throat> because, I mean, there is potentially, I think that's always, to a certain degree, whether or not you're even thinking that's how you're formulating your life, it's kind of, you know, it's sort of, like, built within the institutionalization of, like, art now, that, you know, I didn't take that much time off from my undergraduate degree to then get my MFA, and it's sort of like, you know, now that's kind of just, like, the steps of what people do if you're going to be, like, a quote-unquote artist, you know, and thinking of, like, how do I exist, if you're really thinking about, like, how you exist in the world, is that, and, you know... Maybe at one point I was thinking about the possibilities with that, but I've, like, further realized that for me, you know, that there are many other potentially, you know, I will sort of, like, see in terms of how my relationship to, like, a visual arts practice continues, but, you know, that there are many other things that I feel, you know, that I feel, um, that I feel dedicated to outside of, you know, this particular trajectory of like being an art, like an art monster. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm stealing that term. I kind of like it. I think it, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, but I think it's. I think it's true, and I think <clears throat> you know, and I think it's also because in in some ways it's pretty much the only it's pretty much the only model that um, exists specifically if you're going to you know if you follow like the trajectory of like okay, you need to go live in Paris or Berlin or New York or L.A., and you, like, pursue this, and you decide to make then some sort of sustainable object in terms that people will be able to, like, purchase. And, you know, so you really do, like, being an art monster is really, like, thinking of, like, what is, like, my production in terms of, like, I am an art business. So, you know, and there's many people who, you know, who do this, and they make their life of it, and it's a, it's a career. It's you know, it's, and it's very, it's very, like, accepted. Like, that's just, like, sort of what, like, the form that contemporary art takes now. Oh, and so, and do you differentiate yourself from that? Yeah, I would say I'm not, um, I would say I'm very skeptical of that, or that I realize that, you know, that my practice does not, does not support itself in, in that way, and that, because I think when you begin to um, conform to that model, you know, you start to then 
I think it's easy to, you know, to then feel that you're producing for the sake of producing, yeah. which then I, like, really, you know, you just, you, you're just like a cat, you know, you're just, like, producing objects for the sake of, 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 like, just, you know, just, like, this is my value, and I'm just going to, like, continue to, like, make these objects that will then give me further cultural and monetary capital, and, you know, and so it's just, like, I think more that is something of, like, someone who tries to be, like, very conscious of, like, you know, of how, like, how ingratiated, like, a visual arts practice is with, like, in capitalism, and I'm someone, you know, who sort of, like, believes that that is, like, <laughs> basically like, the one thing... Are you, wait, that, are, you, are you, like, a communist, or do you have, like, different, like, are you anti-capitalist in a really, like, pronounced, like, way? Yes. Okay, so... Um, but the, the, here's the thing, like, like, uh, cause, uh, you know, I, it's one of those things I struggle with, you know, like you have to make a living at some point and I don't know if you have like student loan debt that you're trying to pay off. You went through all these like rounds of school. I think a lot of writers and a lot of artists, you know, you, you're up against it. You got to pay rent, you know, like how, how do you square, you know, anti-capitalist, uh, you know, viewpoints when it comes to your, you know, your artistic life and your professional life with the need to make ends meet? Like, do you have support uh, outside of the context of these grants and residencies and stuff? Do you have support coming from someplace else? Well, um, yeah, I mean, like I do, I do freelance work and I also, I work for, I work for a college, um, in, in Chicago, but, um, yeah. So, I mean, it's also definitely to have like being against, you know, being against like the forces of, of capitalism, doesn't necessarily mean that then I have to like deny that I of course like am existing within them it's more for me you know the situation of what are the things that I can specifically do like while I am you know potentially in different ways like working towards the possibility of something other than capitalism like you know it's still like every day of thinking like okay what are the ways that then I can you know still like build a life out of like the conditions that are all that are already, you know, ex- existing. And so, you know, like, it's, they're not perfect. They're not perfect forms. And, you know, and there's some people who believe that um, they would prefer to then remove themselves from society as much as possible because of those, you know, because of those complications. But I think that I'm you know, sort of like, am someone who still is more interested in existing on um you know the certain certain fringes of of the kind of things that are then like you know sort of provided without like directly kind of like feeding into them and so but that's just like my and I think it's like it's always it's always changing but I think I've also you know and I don't necessarily judge people that have you know, chosen different, pursued different forms of how they, like, navigate the world or the, or, like, the art world specifically because, you know, if you've invested a certain amount of, like, time or money into, like, certain, into certain talents that have then made you capable of, like, earning a living in the world, I don't begrudge that of, 
or, or just, I think like, I think the big thing for young writers and young artists is just the, the educational debt. You know, some people come out with it and some people are fortunate not to. Oh, no, I, I mean, I, I definitely, I definitely have it. It's just the fact that I make so little money, but it's not. So you're just not paying off student loans? Not really. And, you know, and this is also another situation where I've also, for myself, you know, in terms of what I desire, other, like, personal beliefs, like, I'm probably not, I don't have a car, I will probably never own a house, like, these certain things that, you know, what I would, I would feel, I believe, regardless of, you know, of the debt or not, and, you know, it is a very real thing, I'm not trying, and I know, like, plenty of people who's, like, lives are essentially like ruined by it or a lot of like the choices that they can that they can make and I'm in quite a bit of debt but um yeah I think that you know and as I get older I'm sure that you know it will be it's going to be present with me for the next 25 years but yeah what yeah, ha- what, ha- what happens like can you just like can you default on a student loan or do you just like what happens if you just never pay them well I mean, they will find you. <laughs> they'll go, they'll, people, you they'll know, garnish I mean, your wages. But you could, yeah, they will garnish your wages or, you know, you can have income-based repayment or then, you know, after like 25 years, once you've paid off a certain amount of interest, then, you know, then, it's, then it stops. And I will never, you know, but I think that this is also, this is like coming back to like larger, you know, there's like larger issues too of like, you know, I think it like people are really seeing that it's affecting everyone, you know, specifically who has this kind of debt or people I know, you know, who maybe went to the art Institute and, but then went to like a liberal arts college, you know, people who are within the humanities. And if you have then made some, some loan, you know, Sally May, which has like let you take out, so you have like two hundred thousand dollars in loans, and you have only art degrees. Like it's anymore. It's like there's very there's such a small likelihood that you're ever ever going to be able to pay back those loans. And, right. You know, right. It's like a huge problem. I think for like many people, humanities or not, it's just people that have like really crippling loan debt, which I think you know is really you know like artists and writers, and we talk about like how to deal with it, but I think it's just like you know part of a larger systematic problem of like how the educational system in the United States is is broken and you know and then we're going to see whether whether there's legislation deciding to basically forgive student loan debt or not that you know it's basically like subprime loans and this is what then enabled the housing crisis and the crash you know in 2007-2008 so the same thing, whether someone does it or not, like we're going to see basically the same thing happen because this money that's being given out cannot be repaid. Right. So right. I think it's the larger, it's, I think it's just one part, you know, and I think like we always, it definitely affects like anyone within uh, a creative industry, but. Well, you so, so you sound kind of like, you sound like a lefty and uh, oh. I'm, I'm wondering like coming, coming from the Midwest. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. like if, you know, you growing up, like were your parents, uh, lefties, were they hippies or something? Your dad had a decent record collection or like, was it the opposite? They're, they're, they are lefties. They are. Okay. So you grew up in Columbus, your parents, like ex hippies, like kind of thing or. My dad definitely. Yeah. Okay. So like he was, I mean, but I mean, like, was he counterculture in 1960s? Like, 
Wood, Woodstock kind of hippie? Well, yeah, also like active and, you know, other sort of like kind of political situations going on in 1968 and everything. And so, you know, there was a lot of that also too in, um, especially, you know, you know, in Ohio and people like being very much against the Vietnam War. So, yeah, my mom's a little bit younger, but that's what definitely my, yeah, that my... Well, it's funny because, you know, I feel like people who, it seems like it's usually like lefties who are either, they're, like a lot of times they're reacting maybe against like the confining um, politics of the right or something in the neighborhood they grew up in. I mean, that was certainly the case for me and a lot of my friends, like really conservative Indiana. And it just felt like really kind of suffocating or whatever. And I think a lot of our politics are in reaction to that. But, um, I mean, and this is sort of off topic, but it fascinates me because other than like Alex P. Keaton on Family Ties, like I can't think of too many instances where you have a child. I mean, I guess that's not the case. I mean, a child reacting in the opposite way to like lefty parents and then coming out of it like with some sort of like really strong rightward tilt. I guess maybe if your parents were like so far gone that they were like, you know, you're on some commune in a yurt and you're like, you know what, I want to. I want a Volvo or something. <laughs> yeah, I have. I, I mean, I have a friend who, and I think in some ways we have similar experiences. But um, she, uh, her parents are pretty like staunch communists, and I think the sort of like realities of that when she was growing up, and she grew up in Detroit. So I think that. You know, I think that that for her, like, she has, like, a very different experience of, like, the, you know, of that particular vision of communism than, like, I do. Because, like, you know, she was raised, like, communist, basically. So it's, like, that was, like, the religion of her household. So I do know some people, it hasn't made her, she's by no means, like, right-wing, but I definitely, yeah, I do know some people who, you know, that, that, that definitely has that left an impression on so, their uh, experience. So with you, like, it was a happy childhood in Columbus until, like, I'm ima- I mean, I'm imagining until you get to adolescence and then it starts to feel, like, maybe small and you want to break out? Uh, yeah, but I would also say, and I mean, a lot has, unfortunately, changed there, but, like, when, and I mean, I'm queer, so growing up there was actually, um, I mean, in terms of Columbus, there was, like, you know, a lot of queer life that I was able to, you know, I think uh, that I was able to have access to and, like, a lot that I learned just from, like, you know, being around gay people and that, you know, if there was not, like, the space for that type of collective experience or interaction, like, say, if I would have been in a very small town, like, I can imagine that then... Yeah, that it, I would probably, you know, like, who's, who's to say? And, like, in terms of my actual, like, experience of that, I would potentially be a different person, or, you know. Well, but you were, like, you were near Ohio State? Like, you were, like, it was kind of like a university town experience thing? Um, well, yeah, I went to, I went to OSU for undergrad, but, um, yeah, but I mean, like, when I was in, I grew up in a suburb called Gahanna, so like just right outside of like a 10, 15 minute drive to like downtown Columbus. But that's the thing, it's like, so there's university life, but it also, and it's kind of like the case that due to gentrification of this area close to downtown called the Short North, which, you know, used to be like decades ago, like 
of, you know, a place that people would not go, but then, like, artists and gay people moved in and then, you know, like, enabled the gentrification, but then as it's continued, like, a lot of the, you know, gay bars and clubs and things have, like, some of the ones that were sort of, like, staples to the area have closed. But I'm just saying, like, when I was, like, a teenager and one like, like, that, those sort of, like, experiences then kind of, like, helped, you know, to like, shape who who I am today because of their, like, availability of still, like, being in a big enough of a city where those sort of things are possible in really, it, as opposed to, you know, if I grew up in, like, Chillicothe. Yeah, well, I mean, so, and you, it sounds like you came out as a teenager? Mm-hmm. Okay, and your parents were cool with it? Yeah, I think it's, um, it, it's still something that, because, I mean, you know, by, like, you know, and also, like, a queerness is something that is, like, a, it's it's many different things. It's, like, a personal and it's, like, a kind of, like, political ideology as well. And that, you know, I think involves, like, a lot of other aspects of, like, how I choose to, like, live my life. So I think it's something that still is in some ways confusing because, you know, if it's, at the time it was more about, like, me coming out as, like, bisexual. And I think that that is something that's, like, more difficult. I, I kind of say that in, in some ways I love my family very much, and there's, like, but I would say that there are some extended members who are not as um, as accepting and, you know, have a t- sort of, like, tendency to, I call it queer amnesia, where it's, you kind of have to perpetually, like, keep re- reminding people because, you know... <laughs> they don't want to, they black it out. It's like some sort of denial. Well, you know, it's a, it's just like a very different for some people. Their sense of self is so built in their like the stability of their sexual identity. Right. So that to imagine, you know, like I have a fluid sense of of like my gender presentation and like and but still like how I like exist in the world with other people. So like. What, what do you what do you mean by the fluidity of your gender presentation? Meaning, like sometimes you're more feminine and sometimes you're more butch in your presentation, or? Well, yeah, I mean that 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 is part of it, and like how I also, yeah, how I identify or how like I build like relationships with other people, or like at times where you know, I have like maybe felt more like I have identified as you know, yeah, of like being more masculine, more feminine, maybe even of, like saying like I don't want to identify as purely, you know, that maybe don't use the pronoun she for me or something like, you know, so there's, it's, it has, it changes over time and it has. So, and you say, are you bisexual? Is that how you identify or is that how you identified when you were younger? I, that was when I'm younger. I identify as queer. Okay. So, so, but you had boyfriends like when you were a teenager or whatever, and then finally realized like that wasn't for you. No, it was just that I realized that, that it's not, it wasn't about just like one thing that I could be with, like, men or women. But, but I realized I a teenager. But, I mean, even today, like, I mean, like, because I, I just, I'm always curious about this because it's, like, for people who, uh, who have, like, both inclinations or have had both experiences, I'm always, like, God, you know, if you if you have it to compare to, like, women are, guys are kind of gross. <laughs> I mean, I know, um, I know, like, there's arguments to be made on both sides, but it's, like, uh, you know, I guess, I don't know. I don't know what my joke is here, but it just seems like uh, I'm trying to make fun of guys and, and the fact that, uh, you know, w- w- there's just something less, uh, what's the couth appealing? I don't know. 
Do you mean in the in the possibility to like have more? I just know how gross I am. You know what I'm saying? Like guys, just you know, we we just uh, there's something sort of debased. I mean, you know, I, we have our positives too, but yeah. But I mean, I think that's also just like part of you know, like there's like so much. I would say too, like, and maybe this is also you know part of like. Because I think, like, all of this, you know, it's like I don't want to purely just, like, talk about my, like, sexuality or anything, but I think it is, like, a big part of, um, you know, certain, like, themes and sure. aspects interested in within my work. Because specifically, like, you know, you said, like, this sort of, like, regime of, like, masculinity is then what helps, like, club so many other, like, tenements of, like, society and capitalism and... You know, like, there are so many other, like, all, so many of these, like, different types of, like, power are, like, built out of, like, male masculinity. So it's sort of, like, anything that potentially, like, questions that authority is in many ways, you know, like, we are taught to then not accept that or that is obscene or, like, other in a way of, like, you know, like, it's sort of, like, in the taboo where, women to a certain extent can maybe it's like permissible or societally like attractive to a certain sense for like women to have like a more flexible sort of sense of you know how they maybe are with like women sometimes and men but you know like that does not exist that does not that sort of like fluidity does not exist for men because of the well not explicit not explicitly but like that's the thing i think that's part i mean guys are just a lot more wound up about that stuff and it freaks them out you know, I think that, and that's where like all this weird anger comes from and aggression and this desire to like, kind of like pound one's chest and prove that one is a man or whatever. And that's a little depressing, you know, and I've been reading about like fluid, there's some like thread, uh, over on the dish, like the Andrew Sullivan blog. I read it all the time and it was like, it's all about like fluidity of, uh, you know, fluidity of, uh, sexuality and particularly with women and whether or not that's a myth and all this stuff. Like, I find it fairly convincing, like on both sides of the gender line that like, you know, sexuality is not as fixed as everybody wants to believe. And, you know, there are certainly people who are like super hetero, but I think most of us, it's more of like a, uh, a slight tilt, you know, in one direction. Or, or, you know, or it's even like the sense that it's just because like to be hetero, like, you know, it's just because of the the sort of, like, cult of, like, heteronormativity. And it's, you know, that's just as much as of, like, a performance as, you know, other people's, like, gender is. And so, you know, so there's a lot of people who, you know, might particularly perform, like, being, like, extremely straight, but, you know, that might actually not be the case. Right. Like, performing against other anxieties of, like, what they actually desire, and you know, and, like, how, like, their desire might then, like, complicate other things that they've built for themselves in life, you know, like a, like a family and marriage and, you know, how, or like how this, these certain desires not, might not like fit into that. And, you know, and like, there's plenty of, you know, people that have very public and personal crises about this, whether you're a celebrity or a politician or, you know, preacher. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Televangelist. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, so okay. So you you know you you come out as a teenager. You're are you you're uh, like expressing um, like artistic, uh, or you're you're demonstrating artistic leanings as a child. Yeah, 
I think, I mean, when I was in high school, I did, I did, um, I did theater and, you know, I was writing from like a fairly young age and that like, you know, poetry has like always, I'm thinking of coming now, like poetry has been something that, um, I have felt, you know, I've had moments where I had to step away from it. And when I first then started making video in, um, video work in college, this is also a time where I sort of like stepped stepped away from writing and, you know, I've had different like, where now I'm sort of like returning more to performance as also, you know, something that was like at once like very essential for me and sort of, so, but yeah, so I feel like different, you know, and different kind of like creative modes have always been, have always been like appealing to me it's never I don't think I ever really felt or you know it was never necessarily a, I had never like enunciated you know like some people I know who since like all they've ever wanted is to be an artist or like you know like be a painter or something like that wasn't necessarily what I was interested in I think I just was um very lucky in terms of you know of my parents you know, and uh, that they really stressed a kind of, like, curiosity for the world and the necessity of, you know, I think, like, one of the most important parts of, like, being an artist is, like, discipline and, like, hard work in terms of, like, in realizing, like, what it means to, you know, to know how to, like, dedicate oneself to, like, a practice or a project. And I think that those are... And maybe this is, you know, and that also, like, has its, has its, like, downfalls in terms of, like, how... Well, yeah, I'm thinking back about, like, what we were talking about with regard to the capitalistic, you know, impulse and how to make a living as an artist. I mean, it seems like those two things can go hand in hand. You know, the capitalist impulse and the need to pay rent is, you know, couples with, like, a really rigorous work ethic and dedication. You know, like, the two things have to kind of go together or it's not going to happen for you. So, um I, I don't know. I, does that make sense to you? What I just said. <laughs> um, well, I think yeah. I mean, it totally does, and it's also something that I try to be try to be uh, aware of in in the sense, you know. And I think it's also at times like that's very important, but it's also important, you know, to not or at this point for me to not. Um, potentially moralize my labor so much because I think that's specifically now what enables what enables like this this culture of um, you know constant production perpetual availability of like freelance of like in the sense of like it's when your practice or like you know that everyone's everyone thought that like oh now that you can freelance and you're at home you're then free from you're free from the nine to five and the oppression of your boss and everything. Well, it's like, well, now like everyone's computer is their boss. Right. And now you're like slave to it like 24 hours a day. And so it's, it's in that same sort of way that I'm now like more, you know, that someone who like grew up always in like hard work and being like exceptional was always just like not to be, it was like the standard. So I think in the, in the way that's then now made me, you know, I've had to work 
to try to like realize, you know, that like even if I am producing art or writing or whatever or like however I'm choosing to be like active in the world that I'm not like doing this out of some, you know, this sort of like Midwestern post-industrial moralistic kind of sense of like this, my work is who I am. Because I think that that is, you know, that's, I think that's how like a lot of people, you know, that's what in, in many ways I think, you know, that's something like the fantasy of like production and like the American dream was built off of. But we now see, of course, that, you know, that that is something that's not only like morally bankrupt in certain ways, but also like financially because it doesn't exist anymore. Cause, you know, like you can work your whole life for something and then you can have something like, you know, the crisis come and then tell you that like, oh, you thought that you we're going to have money to pay this, but now you don't, so you, now you lose everything. So so I think, like, the, those are in relation to work ethic and, you know, and labor and these sort of, as something that I think, I think about a lot and, you know, and how to try to, how to try to, like, balance those, like, impulses and trying to have, like, a healthier relationship to them. So what motivates you? Like, what do you, you know, like, what is it that drives you? Yeah, I would say I'm, I'm, I'm currently at a point where I am kind of, and, you know, and this is something I would say that, you know, that kind of question is something that I'm constantly, it's like it, that, that is a question itself that's always changing for me in relation, in relation to the work or whatever work I'm, I'm doing. And, um, I think it's usually, you know, built around some kind of, like, question that I am, you know, sort of proposing to myself and then seeing, like, okay, what do I have to do to, like, get there, to get at that particular level of, let's say, like, understanding, so what, que- so, so what, que- so what question, I mean, I don't I hope, and hopefully you didn't already mention this, but what question currently are you fixated on at this artist residency? Yeah, I think I, I and I think sometimes too, it's like, and it's kind of for me like realizing more, um, because for this upcoming fall, I'm thinking I'm going to be applying to PhD I mean, this is also, too, something of, like, how do you support a practice, which I know, like, quite a bit of, like, what writers, you know, writers and artists are, like, turning more and more to do. It's like, oh, you can find some way to, like, continue to be in academia because, you know, like, you will be funded to then work and learn and write for five to seven years. Um, But so I think the kind of... so. I think that sort of, you know, that is kind of like where I'm now like turning my focus of thinking of like, you know, the question of a dissertation is in a certain way. It's a constellation of ideas that, you know, like this is going to take me like five years to think about in a way that I can like write something, you know, like what is an idea or to, you know, like how do you even like formulate an idea that has not been articulated before? And it's something, you know, it's kind of a daunting challenge. Yeah. How do you do that? (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, I mean, there's lots of different methods, and I don't even... I have plenty of friends writing dissertations, so I think it's different for everyone. But I think for this, in terms of the question of this residency, um, because the performance is also kind of like, and some of the texts that we use in our own writing and research, it's kind of a constellation of the of three different figures of Annie Sprinkle, who is like she's was like really dominant. I mean, she still is, but in terms of being someone who was like a sex worker, sex worker activist, and then like performance artist, and she's also a filmmaker now and an educator, Malcolm X and Freddie Mercury. And so I think, you know, and these are, for me, also like three very political, artistically pivot, and also to, yeah, like Freddie Mercury is also for me like a childhood sort of obsession, and I feel like very important in terms of one of my first, um, I feel very like emotional kind of interactions with queerness of, like, you know, of, like, realizing, like, oh, like, 10 years old, like, being, like, what is gay? And, like, being told, like, what that, what that means and what, like, you know, what that means in the world and the kind of reactions that that, of course, creates. So I think, like, the current, like, question or, or interests are, you know, so these are sort of, like, three figures of three very, three very different lives, but, like, people that, you know, are kind of challenging you know, the the possibilities of, like, the conditions for life. Annie Sprinkle was doing so and continues to do so really in terms of, you know, of, like, sexual um, sexual politics and in, and in terms of, you know, of, like, if rethinking sex and gender and, you know, like, what sort of political or personal possibilities can be created there. And same thing, of course, you know, with, like, Malcolm X of rethinking, you know, what is the, what would it be to live in a non-white supremacist America, or what would it be sort of, like, to be, like, treated like a man? And, you know, like, Freddie Mercury sort of, like, I think really interesting in terms of being in a kind of, um, you know, like, this, this sort of, like, figure of, of imagining, of, you know, of, like, imagining of, like, being almost beyond, beyond human and, you know, like, he's so much of, like, what do you do when, like, you're constantly performing yourself. So I think, like, right now it's kind of, that's the particular, those three figures are sort of then, like, the constellation that's helping. I could see them hanging out. You know, I could see yeah. that, you know, and yeah, I, I have totally. to say, I have to say too, like, just to go back to my Midwestern roots, like the, uh, the small irony that like, I just remember like in sports culture and like bro culture or whatever in, uh, my, you know, big public high school in Indiana, like how, like in the locker rooms of like all the sports teams that like how big of a deal, like that song, we are the champions was, and another one bites the dust. Like those songs had like a real corollary to like masculinity and guy culture and, <laughs> Just sort of, it just sort of makes me chuckle to think of like Freddie Mercury like out there like in like you know six inch heels and like a feather boa like doing his thing and you know tights or whatever yeah. and all these guys like grabbing onto it and like you know I don't know do you, yeah do you... I don't know absolutely and so I think he is someone too that you know he became like he is this sort of figure you know of like 
of like of like masculinity, but then also at times like yeah, he would be like in drag, and so I think it, it, it is like this very you know, and also his uh, his relationship to being to being gay, but then of his family of being being Muslim, and so you know, so I think that there's wait, he was Muslim. He is from um, like the sort of area of is he Turkish? But his his name is like uh, Farouk um, Balsara. Oh, okay. And so like his family, yeah, and so like all the lyrics too, like his. I think his. I don't believe he was. But I know that his mother. Yeah, I was going to say it's probably not the greatest thing to be like a, a young gay Freddie Mercury in like a Muslim household. I would imagine, but yeah, yeah. So like, but there's like, yeah, but I mean, so that is of course like something too, like the fraught relationship that created with his, with his, um, his family, and you know that there's like, but an interesting like foreword of his uh, autobiography that his mother. You know, still like loved him very much, but it's like you know the sort of like if you really listen then in those terms of like Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, like there's many ways too of like his like constant like apology and like wish for a while that you know that he was not that he was not gay and you know that sort of like being like a, a curse upon him, you know. But I think it's like very interesting to think of of you know that he's that that has sort of in some ways like yeah been another song of like. It's like this kind of like power ballad, but it's sort of this like person that's then dealing with this extreme like interior like turmoil of yeah. their like sexuality and like identity, but they're doing you know he's doing it on like such a gigantic he rocked he rocked opera. yeah and but the thing the thing too you know like one more note like it's funny to me is that like Axel Rose who is like kind of a, you know, in some ways at the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, super like aggressive, masculine, uh, like hotel destroying, you know, like whatever. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, he was hugely influenced by Freddie Mercury, like revered, yeah. you know, revered him. I know I was reading about that and, you know, Axel's from Indiana. So like, there's something, he's always been a particular fascination to me and Guns N' Roses was like a huge band for me when I was a kid, but um, you know, once again, it's like sort of like there's a bit of irony in the fact that like, you know, that's who we latched on to. And, um, you know, it's all it's all very fascinating. And uh, oh. we're, we're almost out of time. But I do want to ask you, like, once you leave this residency in Massachusetts, like where you're off to next, like your your home base is still in Chicago. Is that right? Yeah. So you're back to Chicago after this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I will be back uh, in Chicago and, you know, Doing, going back to work a little bit there, but then also um, sort of doing some, doing some traveling for, because I have a book coming out from Artifice Books, which is an imprint of Curbside Splendor, also based in Chicago. Right. And so I will be, you know, and it comes out like October 14th, and so I'm going to be doing some reading and sort of like traveling, doing some sort of stuff on the, on the East Coast. And, uh, yeah, and doing, and doing that and, you know, continuing to, to work and dance, you know, research and write. dance and write and uh-huh. do your thing. Well, it's been fascinating talking with you. I really appreciate you taking the time. I certainly wish you well, uh, with the, re- you know, the rest of this residency. And I, and I hope I get to see uh, a performance in person at some point. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, I will. I can direct you to some sort of link where we're trying to because I think everything I do is, you know, in some ways it's it's very. There are so many different components that it's like it's very difficult to document. But you know, I think the process here we're trying to figure at least like to have some sort of written document or trying to create some way to, you know, so that the, or through images to make it so that the, uh, like the experience of the performance can live beyond the. Can live for, yeah. can live forever online. <laughs> Who wants to live forever? <laughs> uh, all right, Cassandra, thanks again and best of luck. Great. Thanks so much, Brad. Okay, folks, there you go. That's Cassandra Troyan. Go get Kill Manual. Go pre-order it right now. Or if you're listening to this after uh, October 14th, 2014, go purchase Kill Manual, available from Artifice Books. Uh, you can find Cassandra online. Her website is called OneMurderLeadsToAnother.com. She's also on Twitter where her handle is at Cassandra Troyan. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Go get that app, the free official Other People app. It's the best way to listen. New episodes automatically upload. You can download and listen offline. You can also sign up for premium right there within the app so you can stream uh, the archives. So go get the app. It's free. Uh, I got to get out the door. I got to go over to this uh, birthday party. Uh, I think the unicorn is going to be there. I think uh, Elsa from... uh, Frozen, the Disney movie Frozen. We've hired a uh, Elsa impersonator. You, you, this is one of the benefits of living in Los Angeles. A lot of out-of-work actors need to make a living. They uh, they dress up as Disney characters and they come to your child's birthday party. Uh, we had one last year. I believe it was Belle. I believe that's from, uh, what is it, Beauty and the Beast? I can't remember. Anyway, this, this uh, young woman shows up and uh, proceeds to stay in character the entire time, even when she's talking to me. <laughs> Like, I'm cutting her a check, and she's, like, still acting like Belle. I'm like, lady, you know, quit doing the method. It's a a kid's birthday party. I'm the dad. Please remember that DeShiel Hammett died of uh, lung cancer and that Samuel Beckett died of emphysema. That's it for now. Thanks again to Cassandra Troyan. Go get her books. Go check out her stuff. And uh, I will be back at you soon. more uh, high quality content unicorns don't exist (laughs) gotta break that one to her maybe I'll break that to my daughter at the party while we're cutting the cake alright I think that's it do I have anything else do you guys have anything to add feel free to speak right now even though uh, you know obviously I can't hear you I can hear you I'm there with you in spirit (laughs) 